Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Crystal once again, recurring guest, one of my favorites. He was, in fact, the very first interview I ever conducted for this podcast. So it was a nice little milestone for the podcast. Today, we talked about Shakespeare's original accent and how David went about figuring out what that possibly was and why it's meaningful. Why would it be meaningful today for us to know what exactly Shakespeare sounded like in his day? You should also know that David Crystal can now be found on Canon+. Plus. David has done whole plays in original pronunciation, which we now have on Canon+, Plus, as well as the sonnets, all in original pronunciation, as well as King James Bible extracts. You can find all of that at Canon Plus. That's mycanonplus.com. Subscribe today. Without further ado, meet Dr. David Crystal. Uh, all right. Now welcoming on a very, very special recurring guest because... This man was the very first interview on this podcast, the very first time I had ever interviewed someone. I was very, very scared and didn't had no clue what I was doing, but you were very kind. Mr. Crystal, welcome back. Thank you for coming back on to Canon Calls. Well, thanks very much, Jake. I, I, I'd forgotten that it was so early in your interviewing career. You sounded like a professional. Thank man. you. That means the world. Yes, I, I, I thought you, you, you were super kind and you were answering questions uh, that I meant to ask, and that that meant a lot. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate your kindness. That's uh, good to be with you. Awesome. Now uh, we we also have special news. One of the reasons that you are returning is that we have recently licensed a few of your audio uh, uh, productions, and so mm-hmm. I wanted to bring you on to talk about those, and so and for you to sort of introduce not only yourself but your project and sort of what. Uh, what those productions are. And and then the other thing for, for folks to know is that there is a lot more on your website at David Crystal. Help me out. Is it davidcrystal.com? That's it. That's the one. Okay, davidcrystal.com. That's, that's the general website. And then okay. the one where you've licensed some material is called originalpronunciation.com. Originalpronunciation.com. And you can get, there. There's there's tons more there. So please go visit uh, those websites, and then also mycanonplus.com will have some of his stuff up very shortly. Um, Dave, do you mind introducing us to yourself if folks are just catching up? Well, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I'm an academic, uh, an independent. I used to work full-time at universities, uh, but then left that in the 1980s now, a long time ago, uh, and became independent. I now work from home. Uh, from My home is in Hollyhead, which is in North Wales right bang in the middle of the British Isles, if you're looking at the map. And I, uh, you know, work generally on all aspects of English language and linguistics and general topics like that. But my focus in recent years has been much more specifically on, on English. And in particular on the history of English, and in particular on Shakespeare within the history (laughs) of English. And that's all because of a chain of circumstances that evolved about oh, about 20, 20 years ago now. I certainly wasn't expecting to be doing this kind of work, but that's that's how it evolved. Now, in your CV, I, I've seen it plenty of places, uh, and so I wanted to double check with you. 
Is it true? Are you the first linguist? Is that how you would say it? Is it, How would you talk about that? First linguist for what, Jake? I believe, I thought for the last time we were, we were talking about just in terms of a field of study. Is that true? Uh, well, I'm certainly not the first in the sense of the subject of linguistics. Linguistics, uh, yes. Yeah. Is it, Am I even close to something that's half true or no? no I, I'm, I, 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 I suppose I am called the first in relation to certain branches of the subject. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Tell us a little bit about that. What, yeah, because linguistics as a subject goes of way, course. way, way back. Right, I right. Mean, you know, back to the 19th century and, and beyond that. But it's really developed as, a, as an academic subject only since, in, in Britain at least, uh, yeah. since about the 1960s. In the States, it was going on for much longer before that. Sure. And so it's moved in different directions. And... Uh, it's one of those wonderful subjects where there's always something new to be found. You know, whatever language was like today, it was different yesterday. It's going to be different tomorrow. Sure. And uh, people are always finding new things about it. New branches are opening up. And so the focus of what I've just been doing in relation to you yes. uh, was indeed a first. Right. Uh, and that was the, the suggestion that it's possible to reconstruct the pronunciation of earlier periods of a language. In other words, how did people in the 19th century talk, in the 18th century, in the 17th, and way back right to Anglo-Saxon times, how did they talk? What was their accent? You know, how did they sound? And some people did sort of prod that subject back in the 19th century and in the early 20th but nothing very much came of it. And so when I was asked in, oh, when was it, 2004, wow. by Shakespeare's Globe in London, uh, that they wanted to put on an original pronunciation uh, production of Romeo and Juliet, uh, in other words, to try and put on that play in the sounds that would have been used on Shakespeare's stage. Yep. Well, they got in touch with me because I was associated with the Globe and they said, could I help? And I had no idea whether I could help or not, but I, I thought, well, let's have a go at it. So in that sense, it was a first. Sure. I, I looked around to see what other people had been doing and did encounter one or two earlier efforts um, in this country and one in the States, actually, Helga Kirkeritz at Yale did something in the 1950s, uh, but nothing ever came of it, you see. It was a kind of dead end. And so the concept that there might be a new beginning here was something that dawned on me very quickly in, you know, 20 years ago. And that's how it's proved to be, because this original pronunciation, or OP as we call it, this OP thing has become a bit of a movement. Yeah. You know, it's now, now something like 20 or 30 plays have been produced in OP, and there are productions taking place all over the place. Uh, and, and so, yes, in that sense, it was a first. Now, when you started on that, obviously, you had a, go a particular goal in mind, which was Romeo and Juliet. So is that your study started there first and foremost? Did it take long to sort of get to the bottom of that play in terms of the pronunciation? Well, uh, because it was the first time I'd done it, it took longer than it's been in later productions. Um, what happens is this, uh, you, you use your academic skills, your, your linguistic knowledge to try and work out uh, 
what the accent would have been in Shakespeare's day. And that's not just me, of course. I'm standing on the shoulders of lots and lots of people who have been studying what's called historical phonology um, of the time. So I, my first job was to bring that stuff together and uh, try and assimilate it and, real, and work out how best to apply it. And then the time was taken in going down to London and meeting the company, the company of actors and the director, and working with them and teaching them how to say these, the accent or the accents uh, of the time and then correcting them and then having another go at it and so on. And that <laughs> took about three, three months and so altogether okay. before the production took place in June of that year. Now, the Globe were, were not totally committed to this idea. I don't know whether your listeners know about Shakespeare's Globe, but it's an attempt to reconstruct the theatre as it was in Shakespeare's time. In 1599, it was built, burnt down 20 years, some years later. Um, and the Globe tried to bring in a policy of original practices. In other words, uh, in this so-called original theatre, let's have original costume, original music on original instruments and all that sort of thing. And then you see, let's have original pronunciation as well. Now, because they'd not uh, done it before, they were a bit suspicious of it. You know, they yeah. thought, well, if we put something on with an accent of 400 years ago, will anybody be able to understand it? You see, I mean, people will not come to the theatre if they don't understand it. So they were a bit suspicious. So they put it on just for a weekend okay. in June. Okay. It was hugely successful. Wow. So as a result, they then decided to put on a full production of Troilus and Cressida the next year. And in that audience, there were people from all over the place who'd heard about this, you see, and they'd come in. And there were people here from uh, Stanton in Virginia at the, you know, the Shakespeare place there. And some other American guys came in and they took it back. So, you know, it went across the Atlantic back to your part, side of the world. Yeah. And since then, most of the productions of original pronunciation Shakespeare have been done in the United States, actually. Wow. So it's become a bit of a movement. Wow. Now, okay, so uh, if folks, if this is the first time anybody's hearing about this, do you mind just very briefly... Uh, can you contrast sort of the original pronunciation with what you call received pronunciation? Yeah, sure. I mean, yes, everybody needs to needs to hear this. Now, in order to get the sense of it, um, you have to contrast it, as you say. So let's take the opening lines of Henry V. Okay. When the chorus comes to the front of the stage and says in my modern English accent, uh, or if I was putting on a sort of Laurence Olivier accent, <laughs> Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, would famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. Now, that's the accent in which most people have heard Shakespeare. Um, it is indeed not a pastiche for me, but, you know, Laurence Olivier, John Gielgud, and all the famous actors. It's the accent that has put off an awful lot of Americans uh, because they don't speak like that. Yeah. And I, I've spoken since to many directors and actors from the States, 
And they all say the same story. You know, they all felt a bit tentative about doing Shakespeare because they don't speak in this Olivier kind of way. Right. And when they try to learn it, it doesn't come out very well. Well, <laughs> when they hear OP, they are staggered because this is the OP version of that speech. Okay. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and Harry's heels, laced in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. <laughs> now, when you hear that, yeah. everybody who hears that for the first time, all you listeners out there, you're saying, I know that accent. I, I've heard something like that before. And of course, Americans hear the part of Mars and say, hey, that's American English, surely, except in Boston. <laughs> yeah, right, and, uh, right. You know, the, the, immediately there's a kind of identity that comes. That's why it became so popular in the States, I think, because people heard this accent, felt that it was closer to their accent, and therefore fell in love with it. Now, it isn't just, of course, American English. I mean, the R is similar, but the R is also in the West Country of England as well. And there are certain sounds in that version which are not particularly American, but you'd associate it with some other parts of the English-speaking world. Do you remember I said the kingdom for a stage? Yeah. Stage, not stage, stage. Now, if you go to England, that's how they speak in Yorkshire up there. They say, good day, up there, you know, good day, like yeah. that. And so that's a Yorkshire feature. And the very first word I used, do you remember it? Oh, for a muse yeah. of fire. Oh, not oh, for a muse of fire, but, but oh. Right. Now, that's, a, that's something you hear in Wales all the time and many other parts of England. And, of course, you hear it in the United States as well. And so there are all these features of the accent that make it a warmer, more inviting accent to people and that's why I think it's become so popular. It's, it's does, it definitely comes across very earthy and very, um, you know, uh, the, previ the, the received pronunciation, I think, especially to Americans, it, it definitely has a class distinction, it seems, almost, where it's yeah. like, oh, that's, you know, classic Shakespeare. That's for people who go to, you know, particular kinds of schools, but not for your everyday. The yeah. original pronunciation almost sounds like a pirate, like it's somebody, you know, anyone could have. Yeah, well, you, you, the people that say that, you see, you're hearing in that accent, it's the ancestor of many modern accents. So you're hearing little bits here and there. Anybody who knows an Irish accent will hear some bits of it. Anybody who, who knows a, a West Country, Devonshire or Cornwall accent will hear bits of it. Uh, if, if you're in Canada uh, and you hear OP pronouncing a word like house, it comes out as house, house. That's exactly how they say it today in Canada. And so people will hear different bits of it and relate it to their own accent. And that's why it becomes, you know, very, very enticing. It, certainly, you're quite right. RP, received pronunciation, is spoken only by about two or three percent of the population of England. Wow. And it's a very upper class sort of accent. It's the sort of standard traditional accent of the BBC and the Queen okay. and so on. Um, so it does have that kind of resonance. And that's why people 
I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful accent. I mean, some of the best sure. Shakespeare ever has been produced in that accent, but it keeps you away from the authentic Shakespeare, as it were. There's a distance there. Can you tell us, uh, for those, what is the means by which you come across getting to that final result? So um, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, what's the evidence? Well, there are three or four different kinds of evidence. The first and the most obvious one uh, that anybody who's ever studied Shakespeare will immediately recognize is the rhymes. Okay. You look at a Shakespeare play or a Shakespeare poem, and you suddenly realize that the rhymes don't work, or not all of them do. For instance, Shakespeare's sonnets are all about love. And he rhymes love with words like move and prove, you see? Yeah. Uh, if this be error and upon me proved, proved I never writ, or no man ever loved. What? Proved and loved doesn't rhyme. Shakespeare, are you a terrible rhymer? <laughs> no. All that's happened is that the pronunciation has shifted. Loved rhymes with proved, not proved. <laughs> now you say, hang on a minute, Dave. Um, how do you know it was loved and proved and not loved and proved? Which way does it go? And now to solve that, you need a different kind of evidence. And that evidence is when you go to the books that were written at the time that actually describe Elizabethan pronunciation. And people don't realize this, but there were several books in that period uh, where they talked about how words were sounding, which words rhymed with which. For instance, everybody knows Ben Jonson, the dramatist. Well, what is less known is that he wrote an English grammar. And at the front of that English grammar, he goes through all the sounds of the alphabet and says how they're to be pronounced. And when he gets to letter O, he gives examples and says, this letter O in the following words is very short. It's not a long vowel, it's a short vowel. And his examples are words like uh, glove and love and brother and prove you see <laughs> not prove right and that's the sort of evidence you go for now there are thousands of examples of that kind you have to look at as many as you can so that's the sort of thing i did i looked at the rhymes first of all looked at the what people said at the time looked at the spellings because spelling is a very important guide to pronunciation in those days today it isn't i mean all everybody knows that english spelling is it's terribly difficult to master. There's no guarantee when you see a spelling, it's going to tell you how the word sounds. Right. Um, but in Shakespeare's time, it was much, much closer to the pronunciation. Okay. So that's the kind of evidence. You put all of this together, the rhymes, the puns as well, which don't work in modern English, but which do work in Shakespeare's time, the spellings and the commentaries from the local writers. Put it all together and what do you get? You get what you heard a few minutes ago. It's not 100% perfect. That could never be. Sure. You know, sometimes there are guess, bits of guesswork here and there. And the evidence is sometimes ambiguous, you know, pointing in two different directions. Well, that's not surprising because it's it's the same today, Jake, isn't it? I mean, yeah. how do you pronounce a word today? Is it schedule or schedule? <laughs> well, you guys all say schedule. I say schedule. Wow. Now, imagine if you were writing a book about English pronunciation, both of those might come up 
and you wouldn't know which one to use right. until you know that one is British English and the other is American English. So in Shakespeare's time, there are these variations too. What I imagine when you're giving this uh, to several actors, their original pronunciation, just by virtue of it's their own voice and their, I, I assume, you know, even that's going to have distinctives to some degree. Is that fair to say? I mean, like, yes, what... that, that's absolutely right. That was one of the first questions that um, the actors asked. Must I lose my accent and pick up this original one? And my answer was no, 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 no. Keep your accent, but introduce into it these original features. The example, the reason is, you see, that OP, original pronunciation, is a sound system, yeah. just like modern English is a sound system. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look, Jay, you and I are talking and understanding each other. We're both using the same modern English sound system, but you sound like you and I sound like me. Right. And that's the difference, you see. So it's exactly the same in Shakespeare's day. Everybody would have used the same basic sound system, but somebody from London would have made it sound one way and somebody from Scotland would have made it sound a different way and so on. So when we did that Romeo and Juliet, you actually heard on the stage, everybody saying the base, same basic sort of thing. They all said invention instead of invention or musician instead of musician. But they, one person might say, it, I had a Scottish Juliet, and she said it in a Scottish sort of way. I had a, um, a Cockney from London nurse, and he said it in a Cockney sort of way. So you heard on stage a variety of accents, but still all very different from received pronunciation. I, so I was first introduced to your work in 2016 in a Shakespeare class, and um, what I started noticing is on Sundays, uh, when our church sings uh, very old hymns uh, and even sort of uh, psalm settings from, you know, 17th century, and I started noticing things aren't rhyming the way they should be. Mm. And suddenly I was just it, like, oh, no, oh, no. It, it's yeah. <laughs> original pronunciation now is like I'm picking it up or seeing it everywhere or even... Um, uh, I always forget what it is when I try to bring up the example, but there's a big uh, famous Christmas hymn where something very obvious doesn't rhyme. And it's not because they were poor rhymers. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And here's the interesting thing, that once people got to know about OP, uh, it wasn't just the, drama, the, the actors and the directors. The early music people got hugely involved. And in fact, there are now more, there's more interest from early music specialists uh, than uh, from Shakespeare specialists, actually. Wow. Because you're right. If, if you do Dowland or Bird or any of the uh, writers of that period, lots of their rhymes don't work. And it's sometimes very noticeable. Um, I mean, sometimes you don't notice it at all, but sure. you do so much of the time that another constituency of interest grew. And then, of course, uh, the other area, which will interest you guys particularly, I'm sure, is that in 2011, there was the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. That's right. And at that particular point, um, everybody was saying, well, you know, how, how would that have sounded in Shakespeare's, in 1611, That's you right. see? Yeah. And so suddenly there was another constituency, and there's yet a fourth, uh, which is less uh, encountered, but it's still important. And that's the heritage people. Heritage. In other words, you go to... 
somewhere uh, like Plymouth Plantation yeah. in your country yeah. or to Stratford-on-Avon in mine. And you, what do you see there? You see all these guys going around in, in old dress, uh, pretending to be original settlers in yeah. Massachusetts or Virginia or wherever, and in this country, how it would have been in Shakespeare's day. And they're all saying things like forsooth, and verily, and all that, <laughs> but in a modern accent, in a modern accent, you right, see. Right. And so these guys are suddenly saying, "Well, maybe we should be speaking all this uh, stuff in in original pronunciation as well." So there's another another group of interested wow. people there. The music, <laughs> the music one doesn't surprise me because I'm not a music person, and it and then just off of the Shakespeare stuff, when I started kind of paying attention more and more to what I was reading and singing. Um, that one seemed to be there seems to be it seems to be everywhere so that that doesn't surprise me at all and that's that's super exciting um now you mentioned the king james bible one of the things that we uh have have licensed from you are sections of the king james bible is uh you said 1611 which is right in the heart of a lot of those plays also so straight over nothing nothing too different in terms of the king james bible nothing nothing at all um the uh the kind of accent that we're talking about. I mean, the language was changing at the time, but um, remember Shakespeare was writing right up until 1612, 13 or something like that. He died in 1616. And so uh, I assumed that, well, I, I made two assumptions. First of all, the sound system would have been the same, but whereas in Shakespeare, there are colloquial and very formal variations. Do you remember when I was doing the, um, example a few minutes ago i said uh, the war like harry and i said the war like harry yes i dropped my h yes right now that's a very colloquial view uh version uh, it was the case at the time that lots of people dropped their h's not because these days we would say how careless but no at the time it was just perfectly normal some people did and some people didn't the people who kept their h's would have been the ones who knew how to read and write and so they'd see an H in the spelling, and so they know they have to pronounce it. But if you were the ordinary person on the street who didn't know how to read and write, you've no idea. So you just say Ari, like many people still do today. Now, there was a choice then. Do you go for a colloquial version of OP or a very formal version of OP? With Shakespeare, sometimes do both, depending upon the context, the character, the situation. But with the King James Bible, it seemed to me that it had to be a formal version. I mean, there may have been people who spoke it in a very colloquial kind of way. Uh, but for the recordings I made, you know, I kept my H's in, for instance, right. and spoke it in a rather more elegant way than I would have done if I were talking about Falstaff in Henry the Fourth. Sure. Well, those are people, you know, translating from Greek and Hebrew, and so I, I think it's very safe assumption to have gone uh, with that, with that, with that direction. Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised if um, the uh, there were occasions when some very colloquial versions came across. I bet, for instance, when people like John Donne and Lancelot Andrews were giving their sermons. They would sometimes speak in a sure. very colloquial kind of way. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Right. Right. Now, you brought up John Dunn. I had asked you uh, in one of our email exchanges. I, I don't remember from where, but it I, rem I had come across my desk somehow, and I'd always put a pin in it, that I think your son, Ben, 
had performed a John Dunn sermon in original pronunciation, and you were very kind enough to send along that link. That was also very, very cool. Um, it's such a fascinating time uh, where when you figure something like this out, this sound system, the amount of fascinating material that you can start you know, running through is, is incredible. Well, yes, and so unpredictable, you see. I mean, when John Wall, now John is, is professor um, in North Carolina, and he had this project to reconstruct St. Paul's Cathedral in London as it would have been in Shakespeare's day. And he got a huge team of people, architects, acousticians, and so on together, uh, historians, archeologists, They've, and it's all virtually available online now, the St. Paul's uh, virtual, the virtual St. Paul's project. And the idea was this, I mean, it all started because it was said that when John Donne gave a sermon just outside the cathedral in the sort of garden area outside, that 2,000 people might have been watching and listening. And so John's question was, could they all have heard him, you see? Uh, and that's how it all started. And so they made this reconstruction of the building and of the outside. Um, and then with some brilliant technology, uh, got people to record various speeches. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, and then they, if you go to the website, you can play with it and say, if I was standing just five yards away from the speaker, how would it have sounded? And of course, it sounds quite good. If I was speaking, if I was standing 20 yards away, how would it have sounded? 100 yards away. And it turns out that even at some distance, you would have been able to hear and understand what the preacher was saying. And this was really quite an eye-opener to, every, to everybody, and it's a brilliant piece of, uh, piece of research. Anyway, they needed texts. Right. And they needed texts in OP. And so they started off with um, the Easter Day sermon that um, uh, John Dunn gave in 16, what was it, 25, I think. And they got my son, Ben, yes, who's an actor um, and theatre person generally, but also he fell in love with OP many years ago and he's done many parts. He's done Hamlet in OP over at Reno um, at the University of Nevada, for instance. And so he's very fluent in OP. So they got him to do it. You know, two hours of sermon, Jake. This, this is no small feat. <laughs> Nearly killed him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, he did that. And it all went up online. And then that project was so successful that it was followed up by another. Um, uh, John, and that's also available now, uh, in which they did a, a different day. And they did the whole liturgy of the entire day from morning till Evensong at night, including all the prayers, all the invocations, and this time two sermons, one, another John Dunn one, and, uh, and a Lancelot Andrews one, which I did, and that was another couple of hours, and that nearly killed me. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, and I would never, again, it's another area of unpredictability. Who would have thought that OP would be suddenly found out to be relevant in that kind of setting? So a much later time, a much later time, but there's a, uh, one thing that's always stood, stood out to me, um, the pastor Charles Spurgeon in his letters to his students, uh, he, you know, he was teaching young ministers and there's, there's a very funny part to 
you know, moderns today of, you know, if, if you're of smaller stature and you don't have a big chest, you know, maybe the ministry isn't for you, you know, which would never <laughs> have come across, you know, that right. would be today because, but, but I'm sure one of the parts, one of the difficult aspects of your two hour sermon and Ben's is those guys are project, those guys are really projecting, you know, that that's two hours of projecting. So uh, yeah. Spurgeon was another hundred years or so, or a couple hundred years or so. But, um, but yeah, I imagine that is hard work, hard work, no matter what accent. Absol- absolutely. If you feel totally drained uh, at the end of it, um, just, just <laughs> imagining yourself embedded it in a um, sound studio, a special sound studio and have to stand on a, a kind of bouncy thing to, to keep the vibrations down and just physically wow. it was an enormous uh, feat of work i didn't have to do that um they wanted me to record my thing in a more like a real life um in, environment okay. um which was much more comfortable but still yes um and you know you've got to do it as well as you can no chance of of repeats you know, you know, you can't sort of say, sorry, I'll do that again. <laughs> no, no, no. You had to just go for it. Right. And if you made any fluffs, well, that's life. Right. I mean, just like the original guy, if he'd made a fluff, he can't say, sorry, I'll just go back in my sermon. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to restart for the audio recording. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you mentioned, so original pronunciation, I assume, has taken over a, a lot of your time and thoughts since 2004 but you mentioned that you would you would you were already a part of uh in some degree the globe what what uh why were you there what what were you are you just a fan of the bard or what interested you to just be around the globe yeah when it started in uh, 1997 this was sam wanamaker who uh started it all off and it took him ages to get the money and the permission and everything and building was finally built in 1997. And then soon after that, uh, they decided to have a magazine called Around the Globe. (laughs) And they wanted material for that magazine. So the editor, uh, knowing of my interest in Shakespeare, uh, got in touch with me and said, would I write an article for Around the Globe? Uh, And so I said, yeah, delighted to, because I thought this was a wonderful um, development. So I went down to the Globe and saw the early productions and so on, and started writing for this uh, magazine and did dozens and dozens of articles over the years. So I got really to know know them very well at the Globe. I, I knew all the people there. And I went to virtually all those productions in those years because, you know, people would say, ah, this new globe, it's it's a museum, it's an experiment, it's not going to be real theatre. Well, of course, it was. It was the most stunning theatrical experience ever, because suddenly, I mean, you all know, all you listeners out there, uh, what it's like to go to the theatre normally. You sit on a seat, and there's the stage in front of you, and the curtains open, and and it's all in the distance in front of you. And you have to sit in your seat seat, and stay quiet. The only thing you're allowed to do is laugh and clap. You're not allowed to shout out or anything, or they'll they'll ask you to leave the building. So there's a distance between the audience and the stage. Now, at the Globe, as in several other reconstructed theatres, like the Blackfriars in uh, in your country and so on, uh, 
the, the, the stage sticks out into the audience and the audience is, stands around three sides of the sticking out stage, wow. as well as the people who are sitting in the galleries around the back. So suddenly there is a closeness between the actor and the and, and the uh, and the audience. Now Ben actually did a year at Shakespeare's Globe, and he taught me all about this, about how at the Globe you the actors are sort of trained how to interact with the audience. If if there's a question that they have to ask, uh, let's ask the audience what they think about it. When Hamlet says, "Am I a coward?" Uh, in his famous speech, uh, normally. It's to himself, as it were, on stage. No, no, when Mark Rylance did it at the Globe, he comes forward to the audience and says, am I a coward? Huh? And the audience says, no, or yes, or whatever. <laughs> and you get this kind of interaction, which is just amazing. And it's just like it would have been. And so I fell in love with the Globe at that point and went to as many productions as I could. And so that built up and built up until... Uh, you know, due to the writing, I would then give a few lectures in the Globe Lecture Theatre there. So they knew me quite well. Okay. So that's why they got in touch, because I was a sort of tame linguist, if you like. <laughs> now, for, for folks listening, um, if they only consider the Bard as uh, some, what was assigned in their junior year of high school, and they, they, you know, I didn't understand half of it. I took the tests and left, and um, I'm not really sure it's for me. Can you, can you talk to that person in terms of what interests you about Shakespeare? If, if they think, well, you're just an academic, that's really your, is that true? Yeah. Well, no, not in the slightest. Um, I, I've been to theaters in very parts of the world, as, as I guess many of your listeners have. I went to the uh, to the theatre in Stratford a couple of years ago for a production. There were school trips there, and around me were 20 kids from one school, 20 kids from another school, and so on, various ages, some quite young, 9 and 10, and the others, teenagers, and so on. Now, were they sitting there bored? They were not. <laughs> they were totally enthused. They laughed, they hollered, they... they they nudged each other. They, they were into it yeah. because, first of all, it was a good production with good actors and so on. But second of all, and this is the most important thing, they understood it. Now, why? Because it's a myth that Shakespeare is difficult to understand. Shakespeare has about a million words in all his canon of plays and poems. If you ask how many of those words are different in meaning from the present day to that time? The answer is, uh, it's tiny. It's 5% only. Wow. Most of the words in Shakespeare mean exactly the same today as they did then. Now, the reason why people think it's difficult is because when you are presented with it in school, you're plonked down, a book is put in front of you, you open it up, and there is a little bit of text and underneath a big pile of notes. Right. And sometimes there are far more notes than the text. Well, then you see those notes, you think to yourself, gosh, Shakespeare must be difficult then. <laughs> and the reason why there are all these notes is because the editor is trying to explain all the background and all the nuances and all the little subtleties that go with the play, which is jolly good. But you don't need them 
if you go to the theatre. And that's the difference. Learn Shakespeare on the page, it's a problem. Learn Shakespeare from the stage, and it's dead easy. And then what you do is you take that stage experience, bring it back to the classroom, and then the notes all sort of fall into place, as yeah. it were. Because yeah. you've understood the play, you've enjoyed it, and now you think, oh, well, I think I'd like to study the language a little bit more. And that is a difficult word on that page. So let me explore that a little bit. And that's when it all becomes so, so different. So uh, especially for our audience in particular, and hopefully folks that will will maybe join my uh, Canon Plus, you, you did whole plays, I believe, whole texts of, of, uh, of Shakespeare with original pronunciation. Are there any of those that you would highly like? Which were your favorites? What, what are you, what was your favorite to go yeah. through? Well, which which is the best play to illustrate original pronunciation? The answer is very easy. It's a play that has a lot of rhymes in it, and one that where the rhymes don't work so well. You see, so you <laughs> notice the op over sure. and over. Sure. And the obvious play is a Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. It's a play which has large numbers of lines, uh, uh, of, of rhyming lines, and ever so often you just say, hang on a minute, you know, Puck, for example, talks about uh, wars and stars at <laughs> one point. Well, they're supposed to rhyme, but they don't in modern English, but they do in OP, wars and stars, and so on when uh, Oberon puts the juice into the lover's eye and says, flower of this purple dye, and then suddenly it's mastery, uh, and, and the rhymes don't work, but in OP they do. And so that's the play that I would recommend. And interestingly, the first full production of OP in the United States uh, was of, in OP, was of A Midsummer Night's Dream. It was done by Paul Mayer, uh, and his company at KU, at the University of Kansas, in 2010, I think it was. Wow. And that is now available um, as a, uh, as a, I think it's both as a radio version and they've got a video as well of awesome. that production. Awesome. So that was the first, first full-length production. And then organizations like the Shakespeare Factory in Baltimore uh, have put on an OP play well, I think pretty well every year for the last few years. Wow. So you know, you know, any play is going to be exciting in that it will be like you've never heard it before. It will be suddenly give you insights into the play you didn't notice. The phonesthetics, the, the, the overall sound effect will be different. And you will notice not just the rhymes working, but jokes will come across in a way that uh, you, you, you wouldn't have noticed before. I haven't given you an example of that, have I? A, a good joke that's missed in modern English. Yeah, well, what's one of those? Well, um, uh, there, there are some very rude ones, and, and, and perhaps I'd better not give those. No, I think uh, in honor of Shakespeare, <laughs> I think it would, be, it, would, it would be the right move. Go as body as you need. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, the best one is definitely... Um, from As You Like It, okay. where yep. uh, the, there's a character called Jakes. It looks like Jacques, but it's pronounced Jakes in OP, um, who uh, comes back to the Duke in exile in the Forest of Arden and says, 
he met a fool in the forest and the fool is Touchstone uh, who has uh, been sitting down by the river and he's listening to Touchstone talking and he says, this guy, oh, he just made me laugh for an hour. And why? Why did he laugh? What did he say? And he describes what Touchstone says. Touchstone apparently said, says something like, um, uh, an hour ago, in modern English, first of all, an hour ago, and it was nine. And in one hour more, it'll be 11. And so from hour to hour, we ripe and ripe. And then from hour to hour, we rot and rot, and thereby hangs a tail. And Jake says this made him laugh for an hour. And you think, <laughs> what? Why? That's not funny. <laughs> In OP, you have to know that the word for an hour, or, sounds exactly like the word for a prostitute. Yes. Or, <laughs> W-H-O-R-E. Right. So what touchstone it without realizing it, is saying from hour to hour, but Jake's is hearing from prostitute to prostitute. Right. From or to or, we ripe and ripe, and then from or to or, we rot and rot, and thereby hangs a tail. Yes. And you can use your imagination for what all that <laughs> might mean. But when you say it in that way, <clears throat> you get it. And everybody does laugh, indeed. And that's the kind of joke that comes across in OP that isn't there in modern English. And I have to imagine for actors, it's sort of crucial that that joke lands or, or that that makes logical sense. Otherwise, you're just up there. It's awful. I've seen it so many times. The guy says it in modern English and then goes, <laughs> uh, yes, well, let's carry on, shall we? <laughs> yeah, it is. And that's why actors fall in love with OP. Every time I've been working with a company of actors who have done a play in OP, at the end they say, I never want to do it in modern English again. Um, they have to, of course, because OP is simply one way of doing a play. There are ways of doing it in modern English which are different and just as interesting in sure. all sorts of ways. But no, once they've done it in OP, they sort of see how it reaches out to them and they love it. And do the, indeed they do. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time again, Mr. Crystal. Uh, everyone, it's, it's originalpronunciation.com. And, and then also we can find more at davidcrystal.com as well. Yeah, the originalpronunciation.com has uh, the Bible extracts that you mentioned, uh, has uh, quite a lot of Shakespeare, all the full plays that you know about, plus yep. lots of extracts as well, and the sonnets. And then, of course, we haven't talked about this, but oh. there's also a section devoted to Old English, to Anglo-Saxon yes. uh, English, which will interest some people, I'm sure. Yes. I, you know, we may come back around for those Beowulf, uh, for the for the Beowulf. So um, <laughs> if you're interested in Beowulf and you want to hear it, uh, in old English, you can find those at originalpronunciation.com. David, thank you so much again for your time. It's been a real pleasure, Jake. Thanks for your interest and good luck with the next interview. Of course, of course. Thank you. Uh